Welcome to Beyond the Show, the interview podcast that brings the educational experience of Cannabis Conference to the airwaves. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Conference and Cannabis Business Times. In this series, we're excited to highlight the world-class operators who will be speaking at the event next month, August 24th to the 26th in Las Vegas. You can learn more about the show at CannabisConference.com, and you can go beyond the show, of course, by subscribing to this podcast. Today, we're talking with Julia Jacobson, the CEO of Aster Farms in Lake County, California. At Aster Farms, Julia draws on extensive expertise in entrepreneurship, supply chain management, and business development. Her personal interest in cannabis is rooted in her battle with chronic migraines, something we'll get into in this conversation, incorporating the plant with her prescribed routine to mitigate symptoms, balance equilibrium, and chart a healthy course. Julia develops Aster Farms' high-level vision, ensuring the team is two steps ahead as the company scales. At Cannabis Conference, she will be speaking on the all-access panel Outdoor Cultivation Strategies for Environmental Variables and Disaster Preparedness. That's what she and I talked about in this interview and more. So please enjoy my conversation with Julia Jacobson. Welcome, Julia. It's very good to have you here today. I was thinking that we could start the conversation in your neck of the woods around the Emerald Triangle in California, uh, just sort of hovering over the area and describing the property at Astor Farms. Absolutely. Our driveway starts in Mendocino, but when you get up to the farm, you're actually in Lake County. Um, So we are in a climate that is actually higher and drier than the typical Mendocino or Humboldt areas, which is fantastic because it's a better condition to grow cannabis in. Um, So we have a longer season and um, less issues with mold and rain in the flowering and harvesting time. So we love uh, being located in Lake County. Um, Right now, our farm has one acre of approved outdoor canopy for cultivation and 5,000 square feet of light deprivation greenhouse, as well as a nursery propagation greenhouse. Um, We also have a 3,000 square foot um, processing facility that handles our drying, curing, processing, and packaging of flour. Um, So that is the current footprint and setup of our beautiful farm in Lake County. Excellent. Uh, Well, I know that we'll be talking mostly today about the session you'll be speaking at at Cannabis Conference 2021, uh, and that's got the title, Outdoor Cultivation Strategies for Environmental Variables and Disaster Preparedness. And so there's a lot to to chew on there, Um, but maybe uh, before we get into that, just sort of zooming in a little bit further, um, I know that in in that part of California, um, just in Northern California in general, and and even elsewhere, of course, in, in the U.S., uh, terroir is is a very important word, and um, I know that California has been uh, kicking around a lot of ideas on appellations in a more formal sense. So just wondering if you could maybe talk about what those words mean and how um, and how the the business interacts with with terroir and appellations on both you know the marketing side or even the the regulatory side with what California has been doing lately. Absolutely. So um, I think that the terroir conversation is very interesting to us because it definitely plays into the actual effects that you get from the cannabis. Um, You know, in our outdoor area, we are growing not just outdoors, but we're growing in ground, in living soil. 
Um, we started with native soil. We've amended it over the years and created a really beautiful living soil. Um, and, uh, you know, at Astor Farms, we really believe that the properties that are coming from that living ecosystem and from that native soil really lend themselves to a complex cannabinoid profile and an increased terpene profile. Um, so we really value that um, type of cultivation and we have chosen to do it that way, not only for the environment, but also for the actual um, effects and flavor and nose that you're able to pick up the same way that you are with wine. Um, something really interesting that you see in Lake County specifically, and we believe that this is because it's higher and drier. Um, in Lake County, a lot of outdoor buds have a much closer density to indoor or greenhouse buds. Um, again, it's not terroir in the sense of nose or flavor, but these are variables that we believe are coming from the climate and the actual earth that we're growing in that are unique to our, our area. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I sort of tilt toward uh, environmental variables and disaster preparedness in general, just on that topic of sort of cultivation in organic cultivation in, in live soil, um, what are some of the, the best practices for that type of cultivation uh, that at Astor Farms you've, you've picked up on over the years? Are, are there certain things that might be done differently in cannabis cultivation when you're working with soil like that? So I, I do not come from an agricultural background, so I can really only speak to cannabis cultivation specifically. Um, but you know what, what, what I believe in cannabis cultivation, and this is, this is not just from being on the actual agricultural side of it, but also um, being a consumer, an avid consumer myself, there really is a difference that you can taste and feel between um, cannabis that is grown outdoors with those principles and with all those variables compared to product that is grown in a greenhouse in pots um, or indoors. Certainly, and just sort of on that note, um, what were some of the, uh, the main elements either of the plant or even the industry that, that brought you to to cannabis um, as, as a career choice and, and brought you to Astor Farms more specifically? That is a great question. It is multiple variables that all kind of pointed in the same direction. Um, I will start with one that did not come from me personally. My husband, who is my co-founder of Astor Farms and the president, um, his grandfather actually was cultivating in the 60s in Mendocino, uh, moved his family out there to grow cannabis and live off the land. And he was actually the first person who went to uh, prison for cultivating cannabis in all of Mendocino. Um, it is also legend, and we have not confirmed this, that Sam's family brought the first indica seeds to California. So there's been a lot of history um, and a lot of cannabis involved in the family legacy and the family. So it was not as big of a jump step for us as it might be for some other people who didn't have that, you know, kind of built into their lineage. For me personally, I've been a recreational consumer for a couple decades now, but um, everything changed for me when I started to develop chronic migraines. <clears throat> They're hereditary, my mom has them, and um, it was only a matter of time until they kicked in. 
Um, at a certain point in my 20s, my migraines, my chronic migraines became really, um, they were just completely destroying the quality of my life. Um, I was ending up in the hospital every few, few months. Um, I was on a cocktail of prescription medications and it was really disabling and, and um, destroying my life. And one of the times that I was in the ER, a doctor said to me, have you tried cannabis for your migraines? You know, people who are not responding to the other medications sometimes do respond well to cannabis. And so I, you know, I had never thought to light up a joint when I'm in the middle of a migraine attack, but I did. And it completely changed my life. I was able to go off all my prescription medications, which weren't working and giving me horrible side effects. Um, I was able to stay out of the hospital for over four years and ultimately just regain my ability to live a normal life again. So for me, that was the moment when cannabis went from just a fun recreational part of my life to an incredibly important piece of my well-being, and so for me, that was when I knew that I just needed to be part of this industry. Um, and so, kind of connecting the dots between what we had learned and the connection we had with Sam's family, um, everything seemed to kind of just fall into place that we needed to do this. Well, certainly, uh, my unending sympathies for any past experience uh, with migraines. Those are those are no joke, and I think. Um, you know, that's, that's an important through line uh, in this conversation. Um, obviously, a, a relatable story in many ways, um, but also one that's very particular um, and, and certainly, uh, certainly nothing fun about uh, chronic migraines. Yeah. Um, just, uh, just for a sense of timing, uh, just because the last few years uh, are super important in this conversation, and we'll get into some more specific events here in a moment, but um, what year was it that, that uh, I guess Aster Farms came to be and, and sort of what were some of the years uh, that you were just talking about there just to place us on a, on a timeline here. So Aster Farms, we formed the company in 2016. 2000, the fall of 2017 was our first formal harvest and our first licensed packaged branded product hit the market in the summer of 2018. Gotcha. And so um, of course, uh, that's me in a way teeing up uh, the Mendocino Complex fire, which uh, for our purposes, talking about uh, disaster preparedness and just looking ahead to the conference um, plays a big role in this conversation. And so uh, if you could maybe sort of set the stage, um, I think the Mendocino Complex fire, I would gather is, a, is a, one of the more visible milestones in recent California wildfire history. Um, you know, for listeners who are maybe not living in California, it, I'm I would venture to guess it's a fairly well-known uh, event in the last couple of years, but, but in your experience and for Aster Farms, obviously it hits a lot closer to home. So just in a general sense, uh, which is probably, your, probably easier said than done, uh, boiling down that experience, uh, could you sort of describe, um, I guess, your relationship with, with that fire and, and those events? Absolutely. So um, my husband, Sam, and I were actually on the property when the fire broke out. Um, the Mendocino Complex Fire was actually two fires, the Ranch Fire and the River Fire. The Ranch Fire started about five miles down the road for us, from us. And um, I remember very clearly when we saw the first plume over the ridge and knew that something was wrong. Um, fortunately, we had two days to prepare. The fire was kind of moving around our property and not coming straight for it. Um, but as we all have learned who have lived in areas where the wildfires are picking up their intensity, um, it's all about the wind. And the moment the wind moves direction, um, 
you can just forget about any plans that you had. Um, so the fire broke out about noon on Friday. By Sunday, we were asked to formally evacuate. Um, and it was absolutely traumatic and terrifying. I think the hardest part um, was, sorry, I just have to like take a second. The, the hardest part was that we have farm animals that don't necessarily live indoors and we were not able to find all of them when we were evacuating. So um, we lost one of our cats. Um, still really upsetting to this day um, and pretty hard to talk about. Um, but that was probably the most challenging piece of all that is leaving a property and evacuating, knowing that you're leaving um, an animal behind. Of course. I think, you know, sort of in the foreground of this conversation really is everything almost except for cannabis and, and business in general. I mean, obviously the economics are a super important part of, of all of this. And um, certainly uh, the business is, is a extremely important part of, of your life up there. Um, but no, certainly in, in the foreground, there are uh, much bigger and, and more important and more sort of intimate, intimate details. Um, I, I suppose, um, I guess, you know, here we are in, in 2021 and uh, that's only a few short years and certainly it's not like the Mendocino Complex fire or any of these are um, uh, solitary events. Um, but setting aside cannabis for a moment, um, and I know that, uh, you know, Astor Farms recently put out a sustainability report and so environmental variables, these are very much on, on your mind even outside of cannabis, but what are some of the ways that, um, that those events in 2018 have really changed how you relate to Northern California or the property? Um, and we can get back into cannabis in a minute, but just in a general sense, um, obviously this, this changed a lot of things, uh, but what are some of the ways that just um, in, a, in a general sense, your relationship with Northern California has evolved since then? Oh, I mean, just a lot of PTSD. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, I think that I'm much more cautious about things that I never even would think about before. Um, we have a trailer that we use for a, a, like a, a trailer to haul things that we use and it is attached to the truck with a chain. Um, that is one of the ways that lots of wildfires are started are those chains being loose and hitting the sidewalk and sparking. Um, you know, there are little things like that in your everyday life, mowing the lawn after a certain point in the summer. Um, little things that you, I just had never had to think about or deal with. I'm originally from Chicago, lived in New York for over a decade. Um, I never had to consider any of these things before. Um, and so I think that just being hyper aware of um, all of the small ways that that you can you can contribute to um, these wildfires is is definitely a change in my life and um, not necessarily something that I'm happy about at all, but um, something that I am now hyper vigilant about on a regular basis and something I see everywhere. If I see a chain, the first thing I think of is is it secured to that truck well enough? Mm, yeah, I think that in, in an, another way is is a, an increasingly relatable. Um, mindset and, and 
you know, series of experiences, uh, certainly in, in that part of the U.S., but uh, in, in many, many places across the, the world, it's becoming a sort of an internal collective reckoning, and, um, and it's not something that's easily shaken off, and, and really I don't think will be. Um, uh, I think, you know, one of the interesting things in terms of an environmental aspect is how much carbon is released from these wildfires. Um, I've never had to have an air quality app in my life. You know, I lived in New York for over a decade. I actually check the air quality regularly in New York just, just to give myself context for where I'm living these days. Um, I've never lived in a place where you actually have to be concerned about the air that you're breathing. Um, and now I do living in Northern California. So I think, you know, me moving here and my life now being established in Northern California has just put a real um, spotlight on climate change for me in a way that I had not so personally experienced. Um, you know, there, I, I've never lived in another place where all these variables are smacking your face and something that you have to think about. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, it's something that we've been trying to really shift our reporting to here in early 2021, taking a closer look at sort of uh, prolonged drought conditions in the Southwest and, and elsewhere, really. Um, but so looking at the calendar, of course, it's, it's late May, and, and uh, this will come out in, in June of 2021. But just as sort of a snapshot of, of where you are now um, with, with cannabis and with Aster Farms, um, what are some of the things going on in, in late May that, uh, that might um, relate to disaster preparedness for the year ahead? And, um, and I guess while I'm thinking of it too, uh, sort of if you could describe maybe the, the air quality in general in late May and what some, some of the things that you've been thinking about recently in regards to, to cannabis and this season that's, that's now getting underway. Absolutely. So, um, you know, at this point in the season, the grass is all starting to turn golden. Um, so this is the point in time where we are finishing mowing down everything, all foliage um, on the site and around the site as short as it can possibly get mowed. Um, we, May 1st was the last date for burn permits. So our, the burn permit that we had has expired. So we've completed all burning that we were going to do for the year. Um, burning is when you take piles of dead vegetation and you do a controlled burn authorized by the Ag Department. Um, it's a way to clear up vegetation um, and ensure that it is not fuel for a fire in the future. Um, so we did that during the burn permit season. We burned a lot of the remaining dead trees on the property from the Mendocino complex fire. Um, now that we have surpassed the burn permit period, we are now chipping the remaining um, the remaining foliage that we feel is unsafe. Um, so we actually have a chipper arriving in two days and the team will be spending a couple days just literally chipping all foliage that they can find that might be um, fuel for a fire. We also have a 400,000 gallon ag pond that we have a fire hose connected to. Um, we just relined it this year to ensure that it stays completely as full as possible through the fire season. Um, and it's, you know, it's really just about clearing brush. Um, embers can travel miles. There's nothing you can do when a fire comes, um, but there are little things that we can do to not be the source of the fire. And that's what we're focusing on. Absolutely. And, and maybe this next question uh, overlaps quite a bit with that one, but um, you know, 
it's in 2021 now. Uh, this is sort of the third season after after those particular fires. Um, what are some of the the more maybe defensive or even you know active offensive uh, property changes that that maybe you pursued maybe as early as uh, late 2018 or early 2019? But but things that uh, that have changed the the look and feel of Astor Farms with respect to disaster preparedness. And I know you were mentioning a few there that are underway in early 2021 now, but um, I guess when it came time to, to revisit the cannabis crop, uh, what were some ways that, that you tried to alter the property um, for the future? You know, the tricky thing is that once you have your approved map and licensing um, in hand and approved by the county, it takes almost a year to change anything. So we were not legally able to change anything from what we had submitted prior to the fire. We could only rebuild it to be to those specs. Um, so there's nothing about our actual site and operations that are different. What is drastically different is the landscape. Um, the entire landscape was filled with chaparral and oak trees, and it's now completely barren. Um, all that's left is uh, the remains of burnt out trees um, and some small chaparral growing back. So the biggest, the biggest difference that you can feel and see on the property is it's just a vast expanse of um, burned out land. Um, the actual site itself, we had always intended to have gravel, um, gravel roads surrounding the entire site, um, which acts as a defensible barrier. Um, so, you know, many of the decisions that we made in our actual site plans when we applied for our license already had these considerations in uh, built in. So we were really just after the fire building them out to those specs. Um, and, and again, the, the biggest difference is just the landscape itself. Certainly, and I know uh, you know we're we're talking about wildfires in general, and, and also in a specific sense. Um, but of course, as outdoor cultivators, uh, there's a wide array of elements that that the cannabis plants and the business in general are exposed to. So um, maybe this may be within the wildfire conversation, or, or it might be a separate line of thinking. But um, what are some of the other broader environmental variables um, that that Astor Farms is either very conscious of or defending against. And I realize, you know, that could be the whole wide array of weather in general, but um, just in, a, in, a, in sort of a high level, um, I guess what is, what should outdoor cultivators be very aware of on almost a more day-to-day -day basis uh, rather than sort of the more exceptional climate change influenced uh, you know, seasonal patterns of, of disaster. Uh, what are some of the more just day-to-day uh, -day environmental variables that, that you and the team are thinking about? I would say um, there are two variables that are most top of mind to us when just growing in your average season when you take wildfires out of it. Um, one is water. Um, making sure that we have enough access to water to be able to properly irrigate our plants. Um, there were, we were in a continued drought for a while in California and we're back in a drought again now. So reassessing our well, we just had our uh, well drawdown report redone recently to make sure that we do have enough water to expand our cultivation canopy. 
Um, so, you know, making sure that we are being re resourceful and responsible when it comes to our water use is incredibly important to us. Because of that, we are regularly replacing our irrigation lines, relining our ag pond, um, assessing the efficiency of our water delivery. We use mulch um, to make sure there's as little evaporation as possible. We water at night as much as we can to make sure, again, that there's a little, a little, as little evaporation as possible. So I would say water is one of the most important variables when you're, when you're growing, period. But when you're growing outdoors, it typically means you're pulling from a stream, an aquifer, a well, um, some sort of natural water source as opposed to city water. Um, therefore, you really have to assess that you have all of the water rights that you need um, and actually all of the actual water that you need on hand. The other variable with growing in, outside, and this is only if you're growing in live soil in, in the native ground. It does not relate if you're growing in pots. Um, growing in ground in native soil, um, especially living soil, is there are a lot of variables and by variables i mean it is variable um, one 10 foot patch of your canopy might have completely different organic matter makeup um, than another patch of 10,000 square feet um, so to constantly continue to amend and ensure that this living ecosystem that we're creating is as uniform in every bed and every row as not every bed and every row as possible is challenging. Um, we're trying to align with nature, but we're also trying to control nature. It's a living ecosystem of fungi, of um, you know, microorganisms, of bugs, worms, you name it. Um, you can't control that, but you need to control it to some degree to have consistency among your plants, among your grow, among your yield. That is something you do not have to deal with um, when you're growing indoors, when you're growing in greenhouses, or when you're growing in pots above ground outdoors. Um, and I think that people really underestimate the complexity of truly understanding your soil when it's not just potting soil. Absolutely. Uh, and I know, you know, this interplay between uh, nature and, and just the idea of limited resources uh, the interplay between that and, and business is sort of at the heart of this discussion. Um, just going back to the, the water drawdown report um, that you had mentioned, uh, I guess just while we're sort of on, on that subject and this idea of, um, you know, working with, with what nature has provided or, or how nature is changing around us, um, and I guess that's an overly broad term, but how the region is changing. Um, could you maybe elaborate a bit on, on the water drawdown report and sort of what that looks like and, and what could, um, what some of the maybe uh, negative scenarios, what those might look like and how a business might mitigate its own water access from year to year? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what you are actually pumping out of a well isn't necessarily the capacity that that well has. And that's on two levels. One, um, it's just the capacity that your pump is able to pump out of that well. And two, you don't know if you had the you know, most intense, largest capacity pump when you would end up drying out your well. So by doing a well drawdown, essentially you're hiring a company that comes in and pumps your well at the highest capacity for about six hours. And then they are applying assumptions to that about, about how much water really is accessible from that well. 
um, at certain points of the year. So for us, we're trying to establish, we know how many gallons per plant, um, gallons of water per plant is needed on a daily basis. We understand on a, on a acre level, how much water is needed for a season, for a greenhouse, et cetera. So we need to understand if we had the best, most maximum capacity pump possible, what is our well capable of? Um, and that allows us to plan for the future. Um, we have about a year ago, we a little over a year ago, we applied for an expansion site for two more acres of canopy on our property. And we are currently in back and forth communication with the county about our CEQA review. CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act, and it is probably the um, most important and most challenging piece of your application to get approval to cultivate cannabis in California, particularly when it comes to outdoor uh, cannabis cultivation. And um, the county actually required that we do a, drown, a, a well drawdown test because they will actually not allow a permit for cannabis cultivation that has the potential of over-utilizing water in any aquifer or any water source. So it, it's not just for our own benefit to be able to plan and to be able to ensure that we're not gonna get ourselves into a sticky situation come August. Um, it's also for regulatory reasons. Um, and that is to protect the watershed. So um, these are things that are required on a, on a legal level, on a licensing level, and are also just good practice for yourself to make sure that you are planning your season out properly. Certainly planning is a big part of this conversation as well. And I know water use is one of the pillars of Aster Farms uh, recently released sustainability report. And this you know, was mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation, but um, could you sort of, uh, again, set the stage for, for that report and, and why you and the team uh, decided to compile this information in one place and, and share it as well? What were some of the, what was sort of the vision behind that report? So with the sustainability report, um, we just really believe that, first of all, cannabis has come from a place that has been environmentally damaging. Um, it has come from a place that it was built on social injustice. And we really believe that it's about time that's, that companies that are fortunate enough to have licenses to operate in this cannabis market should be completely honest and transparent about their operations and showing that in an industry where we have a clean slate, we are establishing good practices from the start to be good operators, to be good stewards of the earth, to be good people in our community, to treat our employees well. Um, so for us, it was really important to start that conversation and to put that out there. Um, you know, it also helps us stay accountable to ourselves by doing the research, by collecting all the data and putting the report together. We discovered things about our operations that we were pretty shocked and, and you know, not pleased with. Um, and so it allows us to really hone in on where we can improve, um, again, for the earth, for our consumers, for our employees, for our community. Um, we, just, we just really believe that cannabis has a clean slate here. Um, we're building an industry from scratch in the legal market, and it's all of our responsibilities to right the wrongs of the past and to be incredibly transparent in an industry that has had a serious lack of transparency on many levels. Um, it's about time that we, we get honest about this information. Yeah, there's a, I mean, honesty is a really good word there. There's a, a very prominent degree of, of honesty and accountability 
in taking on this work. And so I'm just curious, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, a grower, uh, whether in California or elsewhere, um, and, and their, his or her team wanted to take on this kind of work and, and sort of um, turn the, the spotlight back on, on their own business in 2021 or, or maybe going into next year or, or whatever, what are some of the maybe best practices for compiling this kind of report uh, that you and the team stumbled on in this, this first year of putting this together? That is a great question because it was miserable <laughs> collecting the data this first time. Um, you know, there are a lot of logs that you have to keep for the water board and for the various cannabis regulatory agencies anyways. So for example, we had solid waste logs that broke down how much recycling versus solid waste we had. Um, we have, you have to keep every single receipt on hand and filed properly. So we have all the receipts from going to the dump site. Um, we have water logs of all water use. So a lot of the logs existed. They just didn't have the information in the way that we necessarily needed to then utilize it or in the details that we needed to really be able to assess if this was sustainable or not. Um, so I would say that the most important thing if you wanna do something like this is to first just figure out and write down what your goals are in tracking and what exactly you're tracking and then figure out, okay, what data do I need to answer those questions and don't, don't cut yourself short, you know, like gather as much data as you can because you can't go back and get it after the fact. Um, that's the most important thing. And so we definitely learned a lot this time in terms of new and updated uh, logs and additions that we're making to current logs that gather some of those extra details that we just didn't have. Um, an example of this is we log all of our water use, but we only log it as we're pulling it. We're not logging necessarily how much went to the greenhouse, how much went to outdoor, how much went to our processing facility to work the toilets and the sinks for our employees. Um, so we, halfway through this year, we installed a water meter on our processing facility so that we could differentiate what water was used for actual cultivation operations versus facility operations. Um, we are similarly coming into a similar issue with PG&E and differentiating what PG&E energy use actually came from processing facility using keeping the lights on, computers being plugged in versus coming from our actual light deprivation greenhouse, which is growing cannabis. So I would say that really figuring out what data you need and what instruments you need in place to capture that data properly is step one. Um, because like I said, you can't go back and capture data that you didn't capture. Very good point. And certainly, uh, again, part of the broader uh, learning process, but also in, in some ways, um, you know, the cannabis industry as it, as it comes into its own and, and changes and borrows from the past and, and merges with the future. It, it really is uh, like a process of, of self-discovery uh, for everyone involved and, and certainly for the industry as a whole. Um, and so just looking ahead to, to some of these conversations that will be happening at, at Cannabis Conference and certainly uh, on your Outdoor Cultivation Strategies session, uh, what are some of the things that, that you're hoping that uh, audience members can, can take away from this session and, and bring back to their business after the show? 
I think that we all have a responsibility to be building businesses that are as sustainable as possible. And sustainability doesn't just mean not using plastic. Um, sustainability means hiring um, a diverse base of employees, um, creating careers, not jobs, engaging with your community. It means so much more than I think what people sometimes realize is quote unquote sustainability. And so I just hope that people recognize the spance that really one has to um, assess and um, live by and work towards in what sustainability really means and what being a sustainable company really means. Because it's not just all about packaging. It's not just all about your water use. It's about so much more. Um, I think I would also like to point out that you know, there are areas here that we as operators in this industry need to work together to help fix. Um, one of the biggest points in our solid waste, um, our solid waste is the metric tags and the zip ties that are attacked, attached to them. Those are um, regulatory, um, you know, required pieces of our operation. So I think if more of us are assessing this and speaking up, if there's more data collected, we can go back to the BCC and these agencies and say, look at how much waste is being produced as an industry because of the way <clears throat> that our track and trace tags are required to be attached to the plants. Can we brainstorm together a more environmentally sound way to still abide with track and trace, but also not be using so much disposable plastic on a regular basis? So I think that if we all start having these conversations, we all start looking at our own operations and we start collecting that data on a larger level, we will be able to have these conversations with the regulatory agencies and make some changes that enable all of us operators to, to operate more sustainably. Well, the momentum certainly feels real and, uh, and feels good. And uh, I think uh, it's been super exciting just to watch things evolve over the last few years uh, with a, a hopeful eye toward the future. And uh, Julia, you know, I'm looking forward to, to learning more from you and, and others at Cannabis Conference uh, later this year. And in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for having me. And I'm really looking forward to speaking at the conference soon. And that's a wrap for this week on Beyond the Show. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Julia Jacobson, the CEO of Aster Farms out in Lake County, California. Again, she'll be speaking day one at Cannabis Conference. That's August 24th in Las Vegas on the all-access panel, Outdoor Cultivation Strategies for Environmental Variables and Disaster Preparedness. So we'll be continuing that conversation uh, next month out in Las Vegas. You can uh, find all the registration information you need at CannabisConference.com. Read more about Julia Jacobson there, along with all of our other speakers, many of whom will be passing through this podcast in the coming weeks. And, of course, beyond the show, after the show in August, we're going to be continuing this series with those speakers and with additional stakeholders in the industry uh, who will be appearing at future Cannabis Business Times, Cannabis Dispensary, and Hemp Grower events. So stay tuned for that. And, of course, subscribe to Beyond the Show. We'll see you next week.